Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. My guest today is Commander Robert Green Jr., an active member of the United States Navy and the author of the 2023 book, Defending the Constitution Behind Enemy Lines, a story of hope for those who love liberty. In it, he documents the unconstitutionality of the Department of Defense with their oppressive policies and tactics against active duty military personnel with the August 2021 COVID-19 vaccination mandate. At the recommendation of a good friend and military wife, I got Robert Greene's book and devoured it. Accounts in the book sometimes made me angry and sometimes brought me to tears. As a result, I felt it important to give this man the opportunity to share with my listeners information they need but do not have. Thanks for joining me today, Robert. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here with you, and I appreciate what you're doing. So let's start off with context. Who are you? When did you join the military, and why did you join the military? Thank you for that question. So as you mentioned, I am actively serving. I'm in the Navy. I am a Catholic father of seven kids. I'm from a big Catholic family. I'm the oldest of 11. Uh, My wife is fourth of nine. So I kind of jokingly tell people we're still kind of the medium to small size family. Um, But I am uh, definitely had faith at the center of of everything that led me to the reason I'm talking to you today. But in terms of my military service, it probably was brought on by in part, my, my grandfather had served in the army and I had, as a young kid, read a book about John Paul Jones and the character. I was enamored with, with him, what he did and how he stood up, uh, in, in the face of some you know, pretty horrendous situations and had such great courage. And I wanted to do something like that, be something like that. So I was probably eight or nine years old when I first read that book and then became enamored with the sea and, and with going to sea and being a naval officer, and eventually that led to me applying for uh, the Naval Academy and eventually a commission from the Naval Academy. And a couple destroyer tours and some other service later, I, I here I am and continuing to try to support and defend the Constitution as I swore an oath to do. I'm glad you brought the constitutional oath up because in your book, I learned something that I didn't know before. Although the oath to the Constitution of enlisted personnel is pretty much the same as the oath of office for officers, there is a difference. So either you can or I can read the actual oaths because I have them in front of me. But I think it's important for people to understand the difference. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to to talk through that real quick. And and you can actually read those sections if you want afterwards, but there is one particular phrase that is unique to the enlisted oath, and it is that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me. The officer oath has no such obligation. The officer oath, now while both oaths swear to uphold, to support, and defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic, 
the officer oath only has that section. And then it goes on to say things like, I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of, of the office, which I'm about to enter. The enlisted oath has that section there about obeying orders. And so I, it was very important for me in explaining this in the book, like right off the bat in the, in the first part of the book, why officers have that obligation, why it is so important that they're the screen through which orders are received and promulgated, that they have that obligation to ensure that orders are a higher obligation than enlisted people to ensure that orders are constitutional. All right. So as I was going through the book, a lot of questions came to mind. And to be honest, Rob, questions I should have asked a long time ago, because you point out that there's a responsibility with an officer and what he's supposed to do. And both the enlisted and the officers take an oath to the, to, to support and defend the constitution. The first question that came to mind is, so when people sign up for the military, are they given an intensive course on the constitution being tested on it to understand what's in it and what would constitute something that would be in accord with it or one that would be anathema to it? Unfortunately, there is no standard constitutional training that I'm aware of. I've never really received that. I had some at the Naval Academy, but only because I took a course on constitutional law. And unfortunately, the, the services are not doing that right now. And you'd think it would be something that they would have as a centerpiece, a cornerstone of training, you know, start there instead of the endless various lifestyle trainings that, that we seem to, to always be getting. So that got me thinking that a lot of Americans who were born here and raised here don't have the same knowledge of the Constitution that maybe naturalized citizens, people who want to become citizens, who come from other places, they actually have to study the Constitution. I don't know what the test is like, but I do know people who were applying for citizenship, and they took the preparation very seriously. So does it seem now in retrospect, looking back, how could people even identify a lawful or unlawful order if they didn't understand the document with which they had just sworn an oath to? Unfortunately, it becomes very difficult when the organization is built on trust. And those at junior levels of the chain of command, you know, enlisted and officers both, as they are far down from the highest echelons of leadership, were trained to trust that, that someone has reviewed these orders. We believe that commanders are operating with their legal teams to make sure these things are right. But what we found over the last three or four years, and it was shocking almost to me, definitely eye-opening, is that these legal teams, these are lawyers. They took their regular oath as officers to support and defend the Constitution, but they also have an oath as officers of the court. And in what I believe is a betrayal of both of these oaths, these lawyers, the judge advocate general lawyers for so many of these commanders, what they were doing was finding loopholes in the law. They were not informing their commanders about what the law says. They were just nodding their heads and preparing legal defenses for their commanders instead. And so that, that was very tragic that they were doing that and very unfortunate. So, so people 
are sort of used to the idea of that there are many people in management, middle management, higher management to go along and get along because they don't want any problems. Is that your experience with most people who occupy the rank of officer that they sort of parked their ethics and morality or they said, wait a minute, I have to look at everything from the point of view of my responsibility to those who serve under me. Well, that's certainly how I, I took it once I realized that we were going to be violating people's constitutional rights and in some cases, blatant violations of the law. I'll, I'll share with you an anecdote that might be helpful for your, for your listeners. When I was promoted to my most recent rank, it's the highest rank I've achieved as a commander in the Navy. That's an 05, the same as a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force or the Army. When I reached that rank in the Navy, that's a field grade officer. The next level would be, you know, a captain's another field grade officer, but then an admiral. And I was pulled aside by one of my leaders and I was told, Hey, you are now a field grade officer. You're a senior officer in the United States Navy. You now have an obligation as they say in the NFL, to protect the shield, to protect the institution, protect the American people's trust in this institution. And it was just before the mandate when I was promoted and had that conversation with one of my leaders. And I knew that they had already started pushing vaccinations, although at the time they were voluntary, so followed the law, but they were pushing it hard. And in some cases where they were coercing people, it was violation. It was a violation of the law. You're not allowed to coerce somebody into doing something that should be voluntary. And so I was kind of shocked by this discussion. His focus, what he wanted me to think about was, hey, you have an obligation that's higher to the institution. Where for me, immediately, it rang as false. It, it, it had a, I had a problem with it because in accordance with my oath, my highest obligation is to the Constitution which the Constitution, the most important thing it did was establish individual rights as having primacy. And so that there is a, a big problem right now with much of our leadership that they do not understand either the Constitution or how the legal system is set up or supposed to be set up to ensure and protect individual constitutional rights. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. That when you join the military, you haven't given up your right as a citizen of the United States, correct? Absolutely not. You do not give up your rights as a citizen of the United States, as one of we the people. What you, okay. what, what happens is, it's good to explain this for, for your audience who may or may not have military experience. What, what happens is you are temporarily laying aside the ability to exercise certain privileges but the underlying rights are never lost. You always have those rights. Now, certain certain of those privileges would be, hey, you've got to dress in the same outfit as the rest of your people in the line. You, you've got to be able to uh, obey the order to go to bed at a certain time or do whatever. There are certain things for good, for the sake of good order and discipline that you give up certain privileges, certain freedoms you would otherwise normally have. But there is an absolute line, and there are certain things that are sacrosanct that cannot be taken away, and that you are never 
giving up when you be when you join the military. And the reason I said it surprised me, Rob, is because there's always a part of watching the military movies and the the sergeant barking at people in boot camp that said, who would ever want to do that? So I realized that Hollywood and movies can make things more or less as they actually are. But you pointed out that early on, what with family members and with histories that you read, you really loved your country and you wanted to serve your country. And that goes along with even if there were certain benefits in education or things like that, correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. That's a good way of, of putting it. Okay. So a lot of Americans in private business or in government bureaucracies were told, hey, you'll lose your job if you don't take this vaccine or if you don't follow whatever rules we have. And a lot of people just thought, I guess we have to do that. So that goes back to the earlier point. Do we even know the Constitution? Do we even know what it means to be unconstitutional? And I want to let people know that I think they should read your book, not because they'll agree with you. I think people who got vaccinated should read your book. I think people who didn't get vaccinated should read your book. Because as you point out, okay, this was the issue today. What will be the issue tomorrow? We know in other countries, like in China, if you had more than one child at one point, you were supposed to kill your child that came after that one. And if it was a girl, all the more reason because, you know, boys are more valuable to the family than girls. But those are the rights and those are the standards that come before the Constitution. You, you didn't come to the U.S. military as a blank slate, did you? Certainly not. And it's important to realize that the Constitution itself points to a higher law. Constitution itself points to natural law. It's where it derives the words from and, and where we get our inalienable rights from is from our creator. And so that, that is how our legal system is set up. And you cannot take those, those rights away. I'll give you a couple of examples. My rights of free exercise of religion. You can't, we, we do not lay those aside in terms of being, having the privilege to exercise those rights. They are not taken back by the government. They, they do not have the authority, the power. There's no way for them to do that legally. Same thing with your basic bodily autonomy. Uh, and that's something that, I mean, this is really where the struggle came in, is that the government asserted a right to dictate to, to me, an American citizen, what I had to put in my body, what my own risk mitigations were supposed to be. And they did so under the guise of national security. And unfortunately... It was a false narrative and something that we had to fight for the last three years. If you want to get some of the details of those of that fight and the legal principles behind why what the government did was unlawful, then absolutely go go read the book. I hope it's helping for people to start to see that some of those underlying principles and how they apply. But it's not just the military. The legal principles, the law, the stories I tell, the human interest stories I tried to tie into you know, so many of those chapters, they apply to all Americans because yes. what they're doing is they're trying to enforce this on the military first. It's where they think they have the most control. It's where they think they can inject their will easiest. And if the military goes, so goes the rest of the nation. Okay. So this brings up a really important point. I know from your book 
you outlined that there were plenty of people who said no. Maybe not the majority, but plenty. And some of those people were told, pack your bags, you're out of here. And they were dismissed without lawful proceedings. There are others who had the opportunity to retire, and they did. There were others who got exemptions, not because of religious reasons, but for administrative or medical reasons. I had a bad reaction to a vaccine I once took. Uh, My doctor said it won't be good for me if I take another. That person could get a medical exemption. But you pointed out that the one form of exemption that was never approved was a religious exemption. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So what we saw, there were a few medical exemptions. Now, for the most part, there they were, I mean, a handful of them. And, and they were because the emergency that happened immediately after vaccination was so serious that a second dose was likely to kill kill that service member. And then in, in the case of administrative exemptions, they started only approving those after the court cases when they wanted to start showing that, oh, well, we're approving some. So they would pick a few administrative exemptions. And in almost every single case, these were service members that already had retirement orders that were uh, already had indicated that they were going to transition out of the military even before retirement. And almost, uh, I don't, I don't personally know, and I've talked to hundreds, maybe thousands of service members at this point about this. I don't know of a single administrative exemption, uh, that was given to someone who was just going to continue serving. And in terms of the religious exemptions, the service has actually built standard operating procedures by which they would deny every single one of these as they came in. Uh, and they, they had the audacity to write these, these procedures down. They were completely unlawful. They did not follow their own regulations or federal law in accordance with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So these, they were just blatantly documenting their own lawlessness. And, and that, that was what eventually won some very big wins for us in court and got the services because of a court injunction, got the services to stop kicking service members out when they filed religious accommodation requests. So they were blatantly violating the First Amendment. Right. Now, remember at the beginning, I said there were some parts that just got me mad. The fact that long before an individual service person's religious exemption request was even looked at, and From what you describe, it's no small effort to put together one of these exemption requests or accommodation requests. And so the service person put in a lot of time and effort. The first thing that they do when this came in, according to the whistleblower's information that you just referenced, was the disapproval letter that was attached to it and going all the way up for signature and at a very late part of the process, the persons who were examining it were told you might want to read it and see what the person says. So we have some semblance of you actually took this to heart. How many of those took place? Well, in the Navy, I know of more than 4,000 religious accommodations that were filed. I want to say it was more like 12,000 in the Air Force. All told, I think there were around 20,000 people that refused and put in religious accommodation requests. But when I first saw that that release from the whistleblower, I was 
I was appalled. I, I mean, I was amazed, shocked. I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know how to describe it because they would literally, I mean, your, your audience will hopefully be blown away by this, but they would literally take the email when it was received and the step-by-step instruction to the, to the admiral staffer who was actually preparing this for the admiral to approve or disapprove. The instruction told him to take the name from that email and put it in the two section of the disapproval memo template. And that's a very, like one of the very first steps. And then it's routed for review and approval by all these offices, including the legal officers, by the way. And uh, so they're completely in on this and, and participants in this lawlessness. And then ultimately it gets routed to the admiral for signature to disapprove it. And they even request, please sign this document disapproving this religious accommodation. And then only after that is that step where it says, please open the religious accommodation and make sure you copy these details into a spreadsheet so that we have evidence later that we reviewed this thing. It, it, it would, it's a cover up, you know, it's fraudulent. Right. And, and they documented the whole thing. It just, it blew my mind. It was wild. Yeah. Sometimes we're glad that the, the sinful fall into the pits that they dig for others. What I, I found interesting in terms of an active duty service person writing this book, um, when I was talking to my husband about it, he goes, well, the guy must not be in the service anymore. I go, no, I think he's in the service still. So this was a courageous act to write the book. But then you speak of a whole network of people who being isolated, threatened, etc., decided they needed to connect to see if not know that, but if there were other people who agreed with them, tell us a little bit about the network that I think actually my friend who recommended I read the book, she was part of that network. But how did that network develop and and how did you help each other? Well, it was completely God. I mean, it was God connecting us to other people right when we needed the support. Some of the folks were in pretty dire situations I mean, I know um, a young lieutenant with a, a wife and three kids. The wife is pregnant with the fourth, and they have a dog, maybe two dogs. And they were stuck in a hotel room because they had they had moved out of their house. They had transferred on orders to another location, but on the way to that other location, they were they went to a training, and that's when that's when the mandate came down. And this lieutenant was a chaplain with strong religious beliefs, and said, "I can't take this vaccine." So they left him stuck in that hotel room for five months with, with all these kids with his whole life. And they, they did nothing to, to help him. He verbally abused him when he, when he did try to make contact. They tried to coerce him into taking the shot in every way they can. And, and he had to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket to cover this hotel bill. They would, wouldn't give him permission to move on to his next duty station and actually get the housing allowance that he's allowed to get when he gets there. Like it, they were doing some unbelievably egregious things to try to coerce service members to try to get a hundred percent of, of people, you know, so-called vaccinated. So we, we were reaching out, especially some of us who were, were more senior and trying to find every one of these people that we could to try to give them the support that their commands were no longer giving them. They were banned from their buildings they were relieved of their duties. They had qualifications taken from them. They were abused in every possible way that our leaders could think of, short of physically harming them. I felt an obligation 
as a senior leader to, to try to and protect as many of these people as I could to try to give them a support system. And, and it, it wasn't just me, hundreds and, and ultimately thousands of us, as it turns out, were doing this all over the place. And it would be one command and, and, a, and a neighboring command in one location. And there was these, these local support networks popping up around military bases all over the country. And as time went on and we started learning who these other people were and news articles started coming out of about some of the more vocal of us, we started connecting all these, these groups from all over the country and started being able to help each other out with research about the law and with sharing stories with connections to media assets. And that's sort of how everything built up from the ground up. And it was, it was completely, I mean, again, it was God leading people to, to those who could help showing those of us who were more senior leaders where we needed to be and who we needed to connect people to. You know, God allowed this network to, to grow pretty organically. It was something that was a, a powerful thing for those who needed support in some of the most dire, you know, psychological warfare operations I've ever seen against against Americans. And so when I was reading through it, I was like, isn't this how an enemy regime would treat its POWs? And I felt like, wow, how many young men and women join the service because they love their country or they, they want to feel like they're contributing and suddenly they become the bad guys. And one of the things I know they do with prisoners of war is they separate them. How did the military actually succeed in separating service people from each other? Well, as I mentioned, they were denied access to their command. Uh, they they did not allow them to share. They certainly didn't share information about who else had decided to take the similar stand. And they were trying to hide service members from each other who were doing this and making sure that they could not give them the help. The chaplain corps, who should have been the very first to support these people, even if they did not share a particular faith with, with one of these service members, they should have been the first boots on the ground to help people through what for some was a mental health crisis. And, you know, they, they were not helpful. They, they did not do much. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the chaplain corps leaders were some of the most egregious violators of constitutional rights, which, you know, sort of surprised me as we started realizing what was happening. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I, I call the chapter in, in the book that I discussed this networking, this where we found each other and, and started to have hope that there were more. I call that chapter Constitutional Tap Code. And it's a reference to what happened to POWs in the Vietnam War at the Hanoi Hilton. where They were, they were isolated. They were not allowed to communicate with each other. And they developed this, this tap code that they could you know, bang on the pipes, bang on the walls, and be able to communicate with each other. And that communication is absolutely crucial for the mental health, for the support, for the well-being of individuals, to be able to communicate with each other, to share experiences, and to give each other hope. And that's what we had with this network that grew up. It, it was, in a way, our tap code, our constitutional tap code. Yeah, I, I, that was very... Very, very moving at that point. Okay, so I said some of it brought me to tears, and those were the folks who didn't get to. Those are the folks who saw no hope. They 
felt themselves boxed in, and many of them took their own lives, didn't they? Well, I, I do share a story about a Navy SEAL named Daniel, and I do that in, in chapter 15, and I say that that chapter, I, I even mentioned in the book at the start of that chapter, it was the hardest one for me to write, to talk about the various harms that were done to service members. And in, in, in Daniel's case, the Navy SEAL, he had come back from a deployment, had already told his leadership, hey, I, this is, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't for me. I, I'm going to get out. And instead of letting him go, the mandate had come down, you know, right around that time. And he got stuck in, in the service. And what some of us have called that, we've called it malicious retention. We saw it numerous times where even folks who said, hey, I'm out. I'm not going to take the vaccine, but I don't want to serve anymore. I don't care about retirement. Just let me go. And the services were holding them in when they were offering outs to so many other people. And so it just kind of depended on the commander and where they wanted to be malicious. And it appears that this is what happened with the Navy SEAL Daniel. He and some of the other Navy SEALs that had said, hey, this violates my rights and I'm not going to take this, this product. They had their badge access to the building removed. They were denied training opportunities. They were not allowed to participate with the rest of the unit. They were isolated. They were given menial labor. And essentially, they were not treated like the Navy SEALs that they had earned the right to be treated. Uh, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars on some of these service members to make them the highly tuned, highly trained weapon systems that they are. You know, they're the pointy end of the, of the spear for the defense of our nation. And these individuals instead were given yard work to do and not training. And so it happened in September of, I believe it was 2022. And the Navy SEAL Daniel committed suicide in, in his barracks room, as, as I was told. And it was reported to me by one of his shipmates, another, you know, fellow unvaccinated Navy SEAL who told me that the very last duty that Daniel performed for his country was yard work outside of the building. He was no longer permitted to enter. So it begs the question, this needed more than just one person to acquiesce to the mandate. So is it your experience that all the people between the service people, the Secretary of Defense, ultimately the President of the United States, they're all bad, wicked people who want to hurt other people? How would you, I mean, it must be really hard to serve in the service and then say, all these people above me either are cowards or they're malicious. How do you reconcile that? Well, I can't speak to the character or internal uh, mental workings of people who aren't me. So I can't judge what's going on in anyone else's head. But what it appears to me is that we have a just rot of careerism in our most senior ranks, where they are choosing what's best for themselves, their career progression, and they're not putting their oath to the Constitution, which, by the way, also means the constitutional rights of the people in their charge. They were not prioritizing their oath. And instead, they went with whatever was easiest. Whatever anybody else told them to do, they just went along with it. 
So in the book, I call it the Nuremberg Shrug, where they just shrugged their shoulders and said, hey, I'm just following orders. Well, we know in history when something like that has happened before, and it doesn't end well. Exactly. So I run into a lot of people. Oftentimes, they're from minority families, and they're thinking, I, I, maybe I want my son or to, to join the military, you know, whichever branch, because I think it'll be good discipline for him. And I think, um, it'll give him a trade and he can get his education. But then on the same token, there are people now saying, why would I put myself into the situation that a lot of these military personnel found themselves in? What do you say to that, Rob? Well, that's, that's a tough one right now. I mean, we care about our country, we care about our nation, but more importantly, we care about supporting and defending the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The domestic is important right now, unfortunately. I mean, the Constitution does two main things. It establishes the form of our government, but as I alluded to earlier, it, is, it sets individual constitutional rights as having primacy. And when an entity is violating those rights, with abandon, especially in the DOD, we, we saw complete lawlessness as they violated rights and tried to continue to get away with it. They have made themselves a domestic enemy of the Constitution. We have an obligation to resist it. We have an obligation to defend against it. And so that is what I'm doing under my First Amendment rights by talking to you and anyone else who, who's willing to, to listen to these details, to, to talk through what happened. I mean, we need to hot wash this thing in, in, in the military that a hot wash is, is where you, after an exercise, an event, an operation, you sit down and you go through every detail. You find out what you did right, what you did wrong, what lessons learned do we have? How are we going to improve this? And our leadership are there, even the ones who didn't know at first that there was something wrong with this and they trusted those above them. Well, at this point, with everything that's happened, with how public so many of us have been, with all the details in the in the book I wrote, and, and hopefully we can we can talk to this a little bit later, with the Declaration of Military Accountability that I wrote and a group of 231 of us published just recently, and all the details you can find at militaryaccountability.com, no one in leadership can deny that we messed this up badly. You pointed out that with all the people, some had been dismissed, some were pending dismissal. When the mandate was finally rescinded, a lot of the court cases went out the window saying, these are moot points. Let, let's just, let's forgive and forget. Let's everybody get back to work. It's not that as a believer, you don't think there's a place for forgiveness, but I think, at least from what I saw in what you wrote, you don't think forgiveness then says accountability doesn't matter. Well, as, as a recipient of a great deal of mercy for my own sins and faults and failings, I a hundred percent will offer, you know, mercy and grace personally to any senior leader, any admiral in general that wants to own this and do everything they can to repair the harms done. Those of us, the 231 who signed this letter, declaring that we are going to do everything we can to hold them accountable. There is a, a majority of those, a vast majority of that 231 who would rally behind any leader who takes those sorts of actions. Unfortunately, what we're seeing and the whole reason we had to write that letter 
was because no one is stepping up to try to repair the harms, to try to hold anyone accountable who did wrong. And what we're going, what we have is a complete betrayal of trust. The American people do not trust the military. Service members do not trust their leadership. And you're having in at kitchen tables across this country conversations, my generation of folks talking to their teenage sons and daughters and telling them this is not the time to join. So I have a friend who's a retired special forces officer, and I saw a post that he put up. I don't know if he's read your book or not, but I'm pretty sure he would say his experiences in the Army might not be too different. This is what he had to say. Recruiting is dangerously low because sensible young people know better than to subject themselves to military slavery for no good reason. Who in their right mind wants to join an undermanned, under-equipped military with no esprit de corps that no longer defends the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic? So, Rob, I know a lot of believers who will say, the military is corrupt, the military has ungodly leaders, they're persecuting Christians, which it apparently, since the religious exemptions were the ones that were uniformly denied, and that they want to weaken our forces. That's why they were willing to get rid of 8,000, 10,000 competent, well-trained people, because they wouldn't follow suit. But what happens if there are no Christians in the military? Without this network that you were part of, where would be the pushback? Well, thank you. That's a really good question. Um, It is why I'm staying in, frankly. And I've encouraged anyone of of morals and principles who I come across, vaccinated or not. I don't I don't really care about about that as much. People made their decisions based on what they knew at the time or based on their own risk calculations, and everybody has a right to do that. But we need people of values, people of of principles in the service, and so that's why I continue to to stay in and, and do everything I can to uphold my oath and we, and we need more, uh, frankly. But the, the issue is right now that the recruiting crisis is, I mean, it's not an orchestrated thing. It is the natural consequence of misusing and abusing the military for a very long time. The COVID-19 lawlessness with the vaccination program and it's, it's unlawful implementation is just the latest in a long string of abuses. We fought 20-year war in a place where there was not a whole lot of connection to defending the Constitution, but that war never ended. And our leaders at the highest levels did not demand actionable outcomes. They, They did not demand strategic objectives for our service members to to achieve and get us out of that war. There was no victory criteria. And we ended up losing 7,000 people, a river of blood on a foreign soil. And what did we do? We just left and we gave $7 billion worth of equipment to our former adversaries. And so, I mean, that, that was, that was 20 years of buildup to the betrayal of trust with service members, individual constitutional rights, both of, of a religious nature and bodily autonomy. Right. And so. So this betrayal of trust is is the issue here, and we need to fix that. Our leaders have to do it. 
So once again, in the book, you mentioned a lot of people say, okay, so what was so unconstitutional about telling people they had to get an injection? First of all, you parse very well. And I, like I said, read the book, folks. So we're not going to spend time to talk about the EU, the emergency authorization, and how so many laws and regulations were violated as they pretended that wasn't there. But people say, well, I, you look at the Bill of Rights, there's nothing about medicine in it. And you point out that the Third Amendment is a good example of what our founders were considering because they had just experienced it. Explain that because I think it's an important point. Yeah, thank you. That I, I'm glad that you caught that one. I I really enjoyed that Third Amendment analogy. So the Third Amendment is the amendment that basically says government cannot house you know, military occupation force in individual people's homes, American citizens' homes. That's is essentially what it says. And the reason that they actually enumerated that right in the in the Bill of Rights was because it's something that they actually faced. And so, you know, at the time, if you think about about how the founding fathers would have seen their home, it was like their last line of defense. It was the line in the sand that you just could not cross. And when the British were taking people's homes, you know, quartering their, their troops and equipment in the, the living places of the founding fathers, that was the thing for them that they said no more. And they actually enumerated that right. And so I, I think that if the British had been chasing Americans down with a, you know, with a medical device of some kind, a medical treatment of some kind that they did not want and many did not need, I believe they would absolutely have enumerated that right. But either way, it doesn't really matter. I think it's a fun analogy to a thought experiment, but either way, it doesn't really matter because any rights not specifically enumerated in the Constitution are reserved either to the states for the Tenth Amendment or to the individual people for the Ninth Amendment. Right. And that's, again, where if we don't know the Constitution and we don't know the context in which it was written, most people, even with the Declaration of Independence, can recite to you the, I don't want to call it the preamble, but sort of the justification why we're doing this. But then the latter part of the Declaration is all the offenses, all these grievances, all these things we've tried to fix and they don't get fixed because we're being ignored or whatever, most people don't even know what those are. And so that's why, like I said earlier, you mean service people don't even have to know the Constitution? Well, maybe that shouldn't surprise us because we see judicial nominees being asked questions about what does Section 2 of Article 1 and the person gives a blank stare. I mean, this is their job, so you would think that they would know that. So it's bothersome that we can't see this. I, I don't think it's just a fun analogy. I think it's an important analogy because how many people even know that the British were quartering troops in people's homes? Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think it also is not very well known because it's never been adjudicated. It's it's never been sued over as far as I've been able to find in, in any federal court. So, I mean, the Third Amendment, Seems like, you know, if you, you know, from modern people with no historical background, look at it and they'll, they'll say, well, why did they bother enumerating this? Of course, we don't do that kind of thing. Well, to the founding fathers, it mattered. Yes. And vis-a-vis -vis 
with their thought process and the way they established the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, they knew there were going to be things that they could not account for in the future. And they wanted this to be a lasting thing that could be passed from generation to generation. And so far it has, but we are on the cusp of losing it if we do not do and risk everything to stand up for those individual rights that were not specifically, well, even even now that are specifically called out, the government is coming for them. So we we have to do everything we can. All right. So now this question, I'm really interested in your opinion because I've heard people speak on both sides of this. The Second Amendment to the Constitution wasn't about the ability to go hunt. It was not about... I got to protect myself from bad guys and gangs. It was specifically meant for the citizenry to be able to stand up against an oppressive government because that was the circumstance. So a well-regulated militia is not the same thing as a standing army. So what are your, what are your views on the fact is part of the problem that we have this standing army that can not only be commissioned to deal with foreign enemies, but can be turned on its own citizens. Well, in terms of Second Amendment issues, like these other issues, I like to go back to the way, you know, founding fathers were thinking and try to think as, as they would and, and then apply that to our time now. And for, for the purposes of, of owning guns and, and hunting and all that, the, I, I just like to use a, a quick, I mean, it's almost a one liner, but, the founding fathers didn't establish the second amendment because deer were coming over the hill for them. <laughs> and so just, just like today, that's not the purpose of being able to arm yourself and protect your rights. It's not because the deer are coming for us. What do you think of a standing army? Do you think that that in and of itself, if the people who are members of that army or, you know, sir, military service don't even know the constitution. Doesn't it become a really convenient tool for tyranny? Well, I'll tell you what one of my biggest concerns is, and it's related to what you're asking, but a sitting U.S. Senator, maybe a month, a little over a month ago on, on the Senate floor was talking about the recruiting crisis. And he offered like in public that the solution be that we bring these illegal aliens that are coming across the border and we pull them into the armed forces and, and through that, give them an opportunity to become U.S. citizens. So, yes, I am deeply concerned about the armed forces becoming a, a, a majority filled with folks who do not understand the Constitution and is now potentially filled with people who have no cultural or historical basis for understanding what we the people are, how we were formed, what rights we have. And it is deeply concerning that a force with none of that background could easily be turned on its own people. Right. And there have been many, many reports, you might say, on how you go back to post-World War II and agencies were formed that sort of from the get-go weren't following constitutional principles. And so, whereas 
it's different now than maybe it was in most people's minds. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. People will attempt to dominate other people if they're not submitted to their creator, their redeemer, etc. But I don't want to leave our conversation that you're the kind of guy who just doesn't follow orders. You're just a renegade. You know, somebody rubs you the wrong way. In your book, you actually said there were many orders that you have received during your time in the military that you might not have agreed with, but they didn't go against your understanding of the Constitution and your faith-based moral compass. Could you talk a little bit about difference between a lawful order that you might not agree with but an unconstitutional order which you might actually think it's the right order but you have to recognize it is unconstitutional yeah i appreciate that question i've i've been given that question um many different times in different ways and i like to answer it with 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 another you know analogy and example um if you're ordered to take a hill that order might cost you your life. You might disagree with that. It might be the wrong hill from your perspective. But you, at you know, on the ground commander of a company, let's say, you may not have the big picture. You may not know everything. And this goes back to trust. We have to have trust. So what would you what would your obligation be in that situation? If the time, if if there's time enough, you can say, hey. What about this hill? Or I think it's going to cost me my entire company and my own life if we try to take that hill. What if we try some additional air support call first? Something. There are things you can do and address it with the commander who gave you that order. And that would be a lawful order, even if it costs you everybody. Ultimately, you're going to get to the salute point and you say, Roger, I'm going to execute. That's a lawful order, even if it turns out to be the very worst order you've ever received. And it costs you life. In, in the case of an unlawful order, it's important to realize, like, even in our own documentation in the manual for court martial, there are two things required for an order to be lawful. One, it cannot violate your statutory rights. That's your rights under the law. And two, it cannot violate your constitutional rights. And in, in this case, as we saw for the, for the COVID-19 mandate, your strongly held religious beliefs or your beliefs under your conscience. And for some people, including myself, just your beliefs in therapeutic proportionality. Therapeutic proportionality being that a medical treatment has to be worth the benefit for the risk that you take on. And you as an individual, me as an individual, I get to make that decision for myself. And no government has a right to make a therapeutic proportionality decision for me. And that is my belief. And if I have an order that violates that belief, or if I have an order that violates the law, so you do need to understand the law, then that order becomes unlawful. And in the case of something that might otherwise be lawful, let's say that the FDA did fully license the product for this, and it went through all the rigorous testing. And in every possible way, it followed every statutory requirement. But because you have a religious belief or a conscientious objection or something else under the First Amendment, from the moment that otherwise lawful order 
passed from your commander's mouth and into your ear. If you have a First Amendment right, religious objection, conscientious objection, as protected under the First Amendment, that order becomes unlawful the moment you receive it. And then you have an obligation to resist it. What we saw were a bunch of people who had that conscious moment, who said, man, this doesn't feel right. And instead of researching, they went along. And what we need are people who are going to be willing to be honest, not just with themselves, but with everybody around them and say, I can't go along with this because it violates my beliefs. And until we have that, then we're going to continue to have a force in the military that is projecting moral injury upon itself by violating consciences. And, and we know that for a lot of people, whether they thought it was a good idea or were coerced into it or manipulated into taking it, and there have been medical repercussions for them, maybe they should have thought about it sooner. We're not happy if somebody has problems as a result or if people died as a result. But that's where I think the, the true heroes, you and, and your whole group of people who fought this, not just for yourselves, but for other people as well and for your children, these are the heroes we don't hear too much about. And I, for one, am glad that I know a number of them. And it helps me realize that we're all responsible before God and as citizens of this country for the things that this country was founded on. Well, I'll echo that back to you because what you're doing, um, you know, with this show and speaking the truth and trying to communicate to the American people, you're fighting the exact same fight against a domestic enemy that attempts to trample constitutional rights. And the more that you're educating people, the, the greater our chance of putting up an effective resistance. So I am very grateful for you and everything that you're doing. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I might add that the subtitle of your book, the title is Defending the Constitution Behind Enemy Lines, and then the subtitle is A Story of Hope for Those Who Love Liberty. So I don't want to end this discussion with, it is so bad, there's nothing we can do. You've already pointed out, just by sharing the information with other people is useful, but you have this military accountability, is it what, a proposal? And you also have a lot of veterans who are now going to start running for office. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So just like, like, you know, in the book, the title is, uh, is pretty, it's pretty rough, you know, being behind enemy lines, but I wanted to have a, a note of hope in there. We have hope in having found other people. And ultimately our hope is in Jesus Christ, the, the person, yes. but for what we want in this, those of us fighting this in the military, and so many of, of our family members and friends fighting this in, in the rest of the nation, it's not really an outcome-based thing. What we truly want is to be able to stand upon truth, to be bold in standing up for our natural rights that come from God, for our constitutional rights passed down to us by our founding fathers. And if the outcome doesn't go our way, it doesn't mean there's no hope. There is great joy in putting up the fight as best you can and being able to stick to it, being faithful in the fight. And I would say there is, there is great hope both in this life and the next for those who remain faithful. 
And even for those who are coming late to the fight, you know, maybe you were a commander who went along, or maybe you were a, a family member who believed what you were told and then projected that to the rest of the world. You know, in, in we have so many people who are very good people, very conscientious people who did not know better and went along at first. But if you're coming late to this fight, it's never too late to join in truth. And, and in the case of, of those of us who are, are Christian uh, in fighting for truth, the person in Jesus Christ, it is never too late. Uh, there is always hope. And so join us in the fight for constitutional rights. There is great hope there. There is great joy in the fight. Regardless of which way the outcome goes, we're going to have joy in fighting this one. I think the happiest verse in the scripture is really closely placed with the worst. The happiest is, well done, good and faithful servant. The worst is, depart from me, I never knew you. So we are to respond to God's truth and be faithful to that, whether or not everybody else agrees with us. The scripture says, let God be true and all men liars. So um, as it also is said, you and God become a majority because you've got the triune God on your side. So before Amen. we go, give the various websites that you think people who might want to have more information on this would go to before we close. Yeah, there's just one one website. You can find all the resources you need to to see what the law says, to see what happened in the military during you know the COVID-19 vaccination campaign. That's militaryaccountability.com. The most important thing you'll find there is a is the Declaration for Military Accountability. That dec- declaration was signed by 231 active and retired separated service members who have pledged to hold their own leaders accountable for violating the, violating the law. And we're going to do that in two ways. We're going to recall senior leaders from retirement for court marshals if we ever get the lawful authority to do so. And those who are going to run for a legislative office have committed to reducing retirement income for those leaders to zero. And so we have, I think, seven or eight uh, former service members who are running for Congress in 2024. This this movement is picking up steam, and we hope that it is an, ex- is an example for all Americans. We can take this country back. We start at the bottom, at the grassroots, get involved locally with school boards, with church councils, whatever you need to do. Get involved and make sure that you're standing for your beliefs and we can take this country back. Militaryaccountability.com. And read his book, Defending the Constitution Behind Enemy Lines, author Robert Green, Navy Service Commander. So listeners, share this. If this information was new to you, assume that many people you know don't know it either. And it's not participating in the deeds of darkness, but exposing them. And I think we can go a long way as my guest said, by just letting people know the truth. So Rob, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time and continue your fight. You have a whole bunch of people now rooting for you. Thank you. You as well. God bless you. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.